0: Good morning. Good to be with you guys today. Kids, fifth grade and under, if you've got your tag, you can go ahead and make your way downstairs for Clubhouse. The rest of us, we're going to start this morning by opening up our Bibles to two places. You can first mark a spot in Genesis chapter 25. We'll be there in a few moments, but we're going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 18. If you do not have a Bible, then grab one of the ones out of the seat back in front of you. And if you would like to take that home, uh, then you may do so. Matthew chapter 18, this weekend we address what I believe to be one of the most difficult questions to answer in our lives as Christians, and and all of the questions that we've been asking throughout this series have been difficult, but we come to this one, and I think that it's especially difficult, not because the Bible is ambiguous or unclear on the answer. I'll just kind of spoil my sermon for you for a moment. The short answer is no, it's not okay to withhold forgiveness. That's not really the difficult part. What's difficult about it is how we put into practice the command that the Bible gives us to forgive. Difficult because the act of forgiving itself is incredibly challenging in spite of the biblical command that we have. In fact, it can seem impossible, especially when you've been hurt beyond the limits of what you believe to be acceptable, an acceptable reason to withhold forgiveness, as we're going to see here in a little bit. And what makes it even more impossible at times is that how we forgive is often tied to how we feel about another person. The raw emotions that rise to the surface when you think about that person who hurt you or that that pain that was inflicted, that when those emotions rise, forgiveness can seem out of your control. It's one thing to recall certain verses that deal with, with this subject, with this topic. It's, it's one thing to, to tell somebody, hey, you should forgive, and yet it's quite another thing when you yourself are faced with the choice. And just as Dave talked about a couple of weeks ago when he looked at anger and the reality that anger is a choice, forgiveness is a choice. Because God doesn't command us to do something that we don't have control over. And I think this is perhaps a situation in which Peter found himself here in Matthew chapter 18 when he approached Jesus with a question beginning in verse 21. Matthew writes, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Shall I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus had just taught on how to deal with sin within The church, the steps that one believer is to go through in order to address disobedience and sin in the life of another believer. And from what we see in Jesus' teaching, it seems to be a pretty general teaching. He's not addressing anything specific in the lives of those who are listening to him. And yet I want you to notice a couple different things about the way that Peter phrases this question. First, Peter's question to Jesus was personal. It wasn't kind of in response to this general teaching, but he's got this very personal question. How many times do I forgive my brother? How many times do I forgive someone who has hurt me, who has wronged me, who has sinned against me? It's a very personal question. And you see, I find this interesting because by this point, Peter had already heard something of Jesus's teaching on this topic. If you go back to Genesis 5 and 6 and you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had already dealt with forgiveness and he had already dealt with the right of retaliation and how we as followers are to engage those responsibilities. He said things like, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Or he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or even more clearly, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not sin against, uh, if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive you of your sins. The teaching seems pretty clear, and yet Peter felt the need to get clarification. And so I wonder, was Peter going through something? Had something changed for him that maybe he had experienced something in his own life that led him to wonder how far forgiveness needed to make extended, needed to be extended? It makes all the difference for us, doesn't it? And you can recite the verses and you can tell others, but when you yourself are on the receiving end of that hurt, When you yourself have experienced the pain, the question comes to your mind, how many times is it okay for me to withhold forgiveness? The other thing I want you to notice in the question is that Peter already had an answer in mind. Jesus is the benchmark seven times. Perhaps I'll take that three strikes rule and I'll double it and I'll add one for good measure and I think that that's a pretty good benchmark for how many times I'll allow myself to be sinned against, surely I don't have to put up with more than that before I cut that person off, before I seek revenge, before I spend the rest of my life in bitterness and resentment. And man, that that feels good sometimes, doesn't it? To just dwell on the bitterness and the resentment. See, all of us like Peter. We have some kind of threshold in mind when it comes to how far we will let things go before we are unwilling or find ourselves, believe ourselves, unable to forgive. For you, it may not be a specific number of times that you'll allow someone to disappoint you and to harm you, but rather it represents a certain level of hurt. It could just be one Thing. But if it's the right thing, if it's the thing that you have feared the most in your life, then you believe yourself to be justified in withholding forgiveness. And so you say things like, you know, I, I can forgive someone who hurts me, but I'll never forgive someone who hurts my child. I'll never forgive someone who hurts my spouse. The most difficult times that I've had in ministry have been those times when Amanda has come under attack for things, Not me personally, but her, because it becomes more personal. But there's a threshold there. And when you set your mind to it in this way, in the way that perhaps Peter had, it throws off your ability to let God do something through your situation, to let him work through this season. So you think for a moment about how you would ask the question, what number would you put in that spot? What is your threshold? So maybe the question isn't, is it okay to withhold forgiveness? But for you, it's, when is it okay to withhold forgiveness? And as you consider that question for yourself, I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. As we look at the account of two brothers, Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were the twin sons of Isaac Isaac being the son of Abraham, and if you know anything about the history of God's people, then this is the very beginning of the Hebrew of the Jewish people, the beginning of God's promise to restore all nations to himself, the promise that was given to Abraham. Genesis describes two significant ways in which Jacob sinned against Esau, and I want to briefly remind you of these, but I want to relate it to your own situation, to perhaps your own threshold for what you're willing to forgive. First here in chapter 25, beginning in verse 26, we read, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. I'm starving to death. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And I don't want you to miss the significance of what's happened here. Esau was the oldest son. He had come out of the womb before his brother, even though they were twins. He had come out before his brother. And the oldest son, son's birthright was one of the most valuable future assets that he had. By custom, he was entitled to the largest part of his father's estate of his father's inheritance, the choicest land, the best of what was left. And I've no doubt that Jacob coveted this. He was looking for a way to get it. This was a premeditated act on his part. And so when he saw his brother in a weakened state, starving to death, or at least in Esau's own mind, he was starving to death. Jacob seized the opportunity to bargain for it. And I think it could be said that Jacob took from Esau that which was most valuable while Esau was at his most vulnerable, that Jacob took from him. Maybe your threshold deals in similar circumstances. Somebody took something from you, manipulated you, abused you, waited for you to be at your most vulnerable before swooping in and taking something that was valuable to you. Human beings are capable of of doing the most heinous things to one another, especially when they know that their victim is weak and unable to defend themselves. And I know that some of you in this room know that kind of hurt, because it's the pain that sticks with you over the course of your entire life. It never goes away. It can't, and it shouldn't be minimized. We can never minimize that kind of pain, and that's not what God seeks to do through the command to forgive. It's not to minimize the pain, but it's to lead you to an understanding of how God is leading you towards forgiveness and the freedom that is found in forgiveness if you've not already discovered that for yourself. And I know also that we praise God because some in this room have already discovered that for themselves. Now flip over just a couple more chapters to Genesis 27, where we see another instance where Esau is sinned against by his brother Jacob. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I'll summarize what's going on. Esau and Jacob's father, Isaac, is about to die. And it was customary for the dying father to offer a blessing to his children. And again, just like the birthright, the best blessing was reserved for the oldest son. In this case, it was Esau, which was Isaac's intention. Now, you can go back and you can look at the reality that God had chosen Jacob to be the recipient of the promise, but in this case, Isaac had planned on blessing Esau. Rebekah, their mother, she favored Jacob. Perhaps she knew that he was to receive this blessing, and she wanted to ensure that he was the one who got the best blessing from Isaac and not Esau. And so she and Jacob, she conspired together to deceive Isaac. She dressed him in his brother's best clothes. She put goat skins on his arms so that he would feel hairy like his brother. She sent him into Esau's bedroom, Isaac's bedroom with food that Isaac would assume Esau himself, the hunter, had gone out and and killed and prepared. So Isaac, who is mostly blind by this point in his life and probably a little bit senile, he fell for it. And he gave Jacob the blessing that should have been Esau's, the blessing that he intended to give Esau, the, the, the blessing that Esau desired for himself. So you could say that Jacob robbed Esau of this rightful blessing, the best blessing that should have been for the older son. And so it's no wonder that in verse 41, we read that Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. And I have no doubt that he had every intention to do that. That when Isaac finally died, and that period of grief was over, that he was going to go to Jacob and he was going to kill him. I want you to consider that every time someone sins against you, they are robbing you of some kind of blessing. Now, we often take those blessings for granted until they are taken from us, and then we quickly find ourselves at our threshold, at that benchmark for what we are willing to forgive. You think about the blessing of of not having to deal with and work through painful memories that stick with you over your entire life. If you've not had to do that, then that is a, a blessing for you. Or the blessing of not having that loved one a little while longer. Your mother or your father, your son or your daughter, your husband or your wife taken from you too soon because of the dangerous and reckless behavior of another person, whether it was intentioned or not. The blessing of being able to easily trust other people. Because when you've been hurt enough times, when you've been disappointed often enough, all of a sudden it seems like the intentions of everybody around you are evil, Or simply the blessing of feeling safe. Maybe feeling safe in your own home. It should be the place where we feel the safest. And yet if you've experienced a, a burglary or a robbery in your home, then you know that it's not a safe place for you. Or at least it doesn't feel like a safe place. And so it's a blessing to feel safe where we are. All of things, these things are significant blessings in our lives that when robbed does, when robbed of, lead us to identify with Esau's grudge against Jacob, not only in an unwillingness to forgive, but oftentimes desiring that that other person face hurt. Desiring, perhaps, that that other person face death, and all the better if it's at our own hands. And yet, for the believer... Jesus calls us to something different. He calls us to something else. Look at how he answers Peter's question, or more specifically, how he answers Peter's notion that this seven times is kind of a magical number for my willingness to forgive. Jesus answered in verse 22, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. If you have the King James Version, then 70 times 7. The number is not the significant part. It's not what Jesus is trying to get at. He wasn't simply giving Peter a higher standard to shoot for. Some ambiguous number out in the future that we can add up all of these things. And when we get to this point, then we're within our rights to withhold forgiveness. That's not the point. Rather, Jesus is leading Peter away from this Preconceived threshold for when withholding forgiveness becomes acceptable. Jesus was leading him to this reality that the biblical command to forgive is without exception and it's without condition. It's without exception and it's without condition. You take that threshold and you throw it out the window. And there are at least two other passages in your Bible that teach the same thing, not because of what they say, but more importantly, because of what they don't say. Colossians 3.13, Paul writes, bear with each other and forgive each other. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's an important statement that we'll come back to later. And then in a parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul also writes, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Notice what's missing from Paul's words. He didn't say you must forgive unless somebody meets that threshold or unless somebody meets a, a certain threshold or does a certain thing to you, then you can withhold. That would be an exception. and we, we don't see an exception there. But Paul also didn't say, you must forgive, but only after the one who hurt you shows remorse. Only after they apologize, only after that person pays restitution for the damage that they've done. That would be conditional forgiveness, and we also don't see that in Paul's command. And so in other words, I must forgive every horrible thing that has been done to me, even before the offender has done anything to make it right no condition, and no exception. Now, I've argued before that this kind of forgiveness is difficult, if not humanly impossible, for those who are not of and in Christ. The world certainly does not forgive in this way. And, and, And none of this says that we can't seek justice when justice needs to be done, but the world always wants to push beyond simple justice. And so the world doesn't forgive in this way, and frankly, it takes an act of God in order for us to forgive in this way. But I want you to understand the reason for why the command is given. See, God never issues a command without a purpose, without a reason. If you go back and you look at those more than 600 laws that are given in Leviticus to God's people, every single one of them had a purpose for his people for protecting them and for seeing them live a a God-glorifying life where God was the primary focus. Because our life is always best when God is the primary focus of it. And so we consider Esau again. After he's robbed of Isaac's blessing, he vows to end his brother's life. Jacob flees. No kidding. He ran for his life. It'd be 20 years before they would see one another again. We don't know much about Esau's life during that 20 year period, but you can guess what he was experiencing for at least a part of it. You can guess because you've perhaps experienced it for yourself. Think about, we talked about those those raw emotions that rise to the surface every time we think about that person, that every time Jacob's name was mentioned around Esau. Every time his face popped into his head, every time he remembered what had been taken from him, the feelings that he felt, the emotion that went through his heart, everything might be fine, and then something would trigger the memory, and it would all come crashing back down on him. It's unclear how long Esau carried that with him, but it's safe to say that it was for a while that went on for for a long time after Jacob fled, and that's ultimately the test. That's ultimately the test of whether you've truly forgiven, isn't it? Not whether you've uttered the words, I forgive you, but what goes through your heart and mind when you think about the person who hurt you, when their name is mentioned around you, when their face pops into your head, when we remember what's been taken from you. And this is exactly what Hebrews warns us against. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, the author links our experiencing of God's grace with whether or not we are harboring a bitter root and allowing it to grow inside of our hearts, and we are the ones who allow that to grow. His point is this, that withholding forgiveness distracts us from God's grace in our own lives. It distracts us from what God is doing. It, it blinds us to God's grace. Because if you really think about those moments when that raw emotion rises to the surface, is it not true that in those times it is nearly impossible to see God working around you and to understand how his grace is working itself out in your life? We can become blinded by the bitterness so much that just the day-to-day activities of life become impossible, let alone experiencing the deep realities of God's love and what he's done for us. And God's desire is for you to not be distracted by anything that takes your attention away from him. That's the very definition of an idol, something that takes your attention away from God. And so it could be argued that unforgiveness itself, as far as it distracts you from God, is itself idol worship, the bitterness, the anger. The hurt, the desire for revenge, that when we give these things our attention, instead of giving our attention to God, they become an idol. And an idol will never satisfy you the way that God wants to satisfy you. You will never find what you are looking for in an idol, because only God can fulfill that longing that you have. It's only in obeying the command to forgive that you'll come to a deeper understanding of the grace and love and mercy that God has for you. And it's coming to an understanding of that that we find fulfillment. We find satisfaction. We find what it is that God is looking for as we glorify him. And I'm not saying that this is easy and I'm not criticizing you if you've struggled with or are currently struggling with forgiving someone who has hurt you deeply because, again, I believe that this is one of the most difficult commands in Scripture. And it's because it's so often tied to our emotions and how we feel about someone. And emotions, they're difficult to change. They don't change overnight. The way that we feel doesn't change overnight. My purpose is to simply point out that if you find yourself in this place, then you are robbing yourself of a key component of experiencing God's grace in your own life. And so what I want us to do with the remainder of our time is to look at four practical things that we can do to begin this process of forgiving someone. These things don't happen quickly, but we begin the process first by focusing on how much I've been forgiven by God. That's why in the command to forgive, Paul said, forgive as God has forgiven you. Forgive as in Christ you have been forgiven. Those two things are very important that we we link those together. Jesus shared this in parable form. That right after he removed Peter's threshold, that, that seven times for forgiveness, he shared an illustration, a story. And the story was of a servant who owed his master an unthinkable amount of money, an amount that would have taken several lifetimes in order for him to repay. And because of this debt that was owed, the king was about to throw him into prison. And the servant begs for mercy. He begs that the king would forgive him, and seemingly unprompted, that's exactly what the king does. He removes every penny of that debt, not one Thing was owed. He didn't even extend a loan to him. He just said, it's all forgiven. You owe me nothing. Of course, the servant celebrated and he, he ran out. As he's going along the road, it's not very long he encounters another man who owed him some money. Not nearly the amount that he had owed this king. In fact, it was a minuscule amount, an amount that probably would have taken less than a year to repay. And so this man, he, he begged this servant for mercy. And what did the servant do? He had him thrown into prison until he could repay his debt. Word gets back to the king that this servant that he had been merciful to had not been so to this other man. And so he reinstates the debt and he has him thrown into prison until he could pay back every penny. See, the point that Jesus was making was that the servant who was forgiven the large sum failed to understand just how much he had been forgiven by the king. And it led him to his own unwillingness to offer mercy to this other man who owed him far less. And I think it's the same for you and me. That an unwillingness to forgive that sin that has been been done to me demonstrates a lack of understanding just how much I've been forgiven in Christ. The ultimate point is that your whole life is owed to the reality that God has forgiven you of your sins against Him, which are infinitely greater than any way that another person can sin against you. That God has forgiven us of that. And so we praise God that He has no threshold for what He's willing to forgive. That if God had a benchmark for what he was willing to forgive in Christ, if Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient for every single sin that was committed against God, then every one of us in this room are doomed. So we praise God that he has no threshold. And So likewise, we should have no threshold. No benchmark for what we're willing to forgive in others. And so the invitation to you is to meditate upon the amazing grace of God that has canceled the debt of your own sin, a debt that you never could have repaid, and to extend that grace and that forgiveness to others who have sinned against you less than you've sinned against God. That's the point of the parable. So we focus on how much we've been forgiven. Secondly, when that bitterness rises to the surface at the mention of that person or that thing that was done to you, then we follow Paul's command in 2 Corinthians 10:15 to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That just as with other temptations which begin in the mind, you have the choice of dwelling on that bitter thought and allowing it to grow. That we have the ability to take our thoughts captive and submit them to Christ or we can let it develop we can let it fester we can let it bud into more anger and more resentment and more hatred all the while it's distracting us from god's grace in our own lives and we can't see what god is doing that's one option the other option is to redirect the thought and submit it to christ to let him have control over it so that he can remind you of what you have been forgiven and lead you to a place of surrender. Because ultimately you have this choice, but that choice has to be made quickly. If we allow these things, even a foothold, even a slight advantage, then they'll grow seemingly out of our control. And they'll take away our ability to see the mercy that's been experienced in our own life. And so we take it captive immediately. And we submit it to the Lord to use it for his glory. Third, and this is, this is difficult. All of this is difficult, but third is difficult. Pray for that person who hurt you. Pray for the person who hurt me. That was Jesus's command. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And I'm not talking about praying that something horrible would happen to that person, right? Because sometimes we do that. We pray that something awful would happen to them. We we pray for God's retributive justice. God, maybe this isn't going to happen now, but but at some point they're going to be before you and and, and I want you to to punish them for what they've done. We pray for that. I also don't want you to simply pray that their ways would change. When we pray, we, we pray first for our own heart, that God would soften your heart to to know the joy of them knowing him. But we pray that they would come to an understanding of who God is and what he has for them. And the reality that salvation is also for them. You see where I'm getting at with this. That when we pray for another person, what we are doing is we are elevating their soul beyond what the deeds of their body have done. That the soul of each individual is not worth less or more than the soul of another individual. And so when I ask the question, do I desire to see this person in heaven one day? The answer should be yes. For every Christian, the answer should be yes. And praying for that person elevates their soul to the point that I want to see them in the presence of God someday. That I want them to know the salvation that I have received in Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to pray that. Jesus says it's easy for us to pray that for our friends and for those that we love. But the challenge comes when we pray that for those that have hurt us. And yet that's what we've been commanded to do. And so you pray for them and you pray for your own heart that it would be softened to be ready for them to accept that. To be desiring that they would accept that. And so we pray. Finally, we look towards the, forget, the freedom that is found in forgiveness. When you're stuck in a pattern of unforgiveness, when bitterness and anger have taken hold, it can feel like a prison. And I can imagine that's how Esau felt for a long time after his brother Jacob fled. But I want you to look just one more place for me as we wrap up this morning, and that's in Genesis chapter 32. 20 years have passed since These brothers were separated since Jacob fled for his life. A lot has gone on in the life of Jacob, and as he's traveling through, he realizes that he's about to pass through Esau's territory, that he's going to have to come face to face with this man who 20 years ago had vowed to take his life. He's uncertain of whether Esau still holds that grudge, whether he still intends on killing him and so he devises a plan in order to appease his brother and soften his heart toward him. He takes some of the best of his livestock and he he puts them into groups and he separates them by a distance. And he kind of takes his place in the back and he begins to send these animals to his brother as a gift. And with every group he would send his servants along and when his servants got to Esau they were to tell him that these These animals, this livestock, was a gift from his brother Jacob and that his brother Jacob was coming up from behind. See, Jacob assumed that if he kind of came up on his brother and surprised him that his brother's instinct would just be to kill him. And so he wants to appease him and and make him happy and and soften his heart a little bit in order to receive him without taking his life. Then the moment comes. Jacob's coming up. he, He sees Esau in the distance and as he's walking towards him, he bows down seven times in a sign of submission to his brother. But I want you to look at what verse four says in chapter 33. That Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept together. You see, at some point over that 20-year period, Esau had let go of the hurt. He'd let go of the pain. He'd let go, he didn't forget, but he let go of the memories of what had been done to him at the hands of his brother. We don't know when he let it go, but it's clear that he did. And by running towards and embracing Jacob, not demanding an apology, not demanding restitution, he, when, when he asked Jacob, Why did you send all of these things? And, and Jacob said, They were gifts to you in order to find favor in your eyes. And Esau said, You already have it. That he wasn't looking for restitution or an apology or, or remorse. And he was demonstrating that he had been freed from the bitterness and the anger that he once felt. It stopped being the focus of his attention. And it was replaced with love for his brother. And I'm not saying this and using it as an illustration to show that you need to get to a point where you can hug and kiss that person who hurt you very deeply. You may never get to that point. You may never get to the point where you can have a a, a friendship with that person and hang out with them and spend time with them. That's not the point. The point is that with the forgiveness you have received from God and by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, you can be released from the prison of bitterness that gets in the way of experiencing God's grace. That when we withhold forgiveness, it doesn't hurt that person that we're withholding from. It hurts us. And it gets in our way. And so that when that person comes into your mind, what doesn't rise to the surface of those raw emotions and pain, but a love that desires to see him or her also know the grace of God. And that's how you know that God has brought you to the place of forgiveness. And if it was possible for Esau, then how much more for you who have experienced the fullness of God's grace in your own life? See, Esau didn't have the advantage of the cross. He didn't have the advantage of seeing God's grace fully worked out in this full plan of redemption that we have the benefit of seeing 2,000 years after it happened. And so how much more through Christ can we be freed from this unforgiveness and from this bitterness? That's the invitation for you. To know of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness in your own life so that you can love even those who have hurt you. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, this is uh, difficult. But Lord, I praise you that you have equipped us by your Holy Spirit to do what you've called us to do. That nothing in your word, nothing that you've commanded is without reason, without purpose. Nothing that you've commanded is impossible, and Lord, this can seem impossible. But we also know that you are a God of impossibilities, that nothing is impossible with you. And so, Father, if there are those in this room right now who are struggling with this, Lord, lead them to a place where they would surrender it to you, that they can know of the freedom that's found in forgiveness and of fully experiencing your grace in their own lives. And Lord, for those who are in the room who have not yet even experienced your grace and forgiveness, I ask that you lead them to yourself, that they would surrender their whole life to you, that this debt that they owe, the debt that all of us have once owed, would be completely canceled, washed away, removed from us, that we would know the joy and fellowship of being in your presence. Thank you, Father, for your word the way that you empower us to do these things and for your love that's displayed in our lives towards others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.